Welcome to Breaking Green Ceilings, the podcast that amplifies the diverse voices of those who are committed to protecting and sustainably managing our natural environment. I'm your host, Sapna Mulki. Let's get started. Today, we're talking to Dr. Justin Donovan, who is an archaeologist and is currently focusing his research on the daily lives of enslaved Africans who lived and worked on estate Little Princess, starting from the plantation's founding in 1749 until slavery was abolished on St. Croix in 1848. To get a glimpse of those lives, Justin is exploring the relationship between ecology and enslavement. So we talk about how he studies the vegetation water systems, and other environmental features of plantations to understand how slavery reshaped the islands and the world. For example, we talked about how enslaved Africans were forced to clear-cut extensive forests to make way for cane lands, which has resulted in the deforested island of St. Croix today. I would have never expected archaeologists to consider the influence of the natural environment as a factor that shaped the story of people who lived over three centuries back. It's really fascinating and it makes total sense when you listen to Justin talk about the intersectionality of his research. Another cool thing about Justin is that he's a co-founder and president of the Society of Black Archaeologists. And I didn't know this, but less than 1% of U.S. archaeologists identify identify as Black, and we talk about how he's trying to change this with some of his fellow colleagues. So Justin's research is absolutely fascinating, and I could listen to him talk about it for hours. And that's why I'm extremely excited to share this story with you. We talked about so much stuff that most of us don't ever think about on a daily basis or ever, and I really hope you enjoy this. So yeah, I thought we could just start off the conversation by you telling us a little bit about the journey that you found yourself taking that led you to becoming an archaeologist and how did you see yourself making an impact in this particular area of study? Yeah, that's a good question. So I really didn't get interested in archaeology until undergrad at Howard University. I was always interested in history, but I started out as an international business major. It was a very big sort of transition. Yeah, major. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> My first year study abroad, I signed up for a study abroad program. And the one that didn't have a prerequisite was to do archaeology in the rainforest in Belize, looking at a Mayan site. And I was always interested in history, but I had never done archaeology before, never heard of it before. So I signed up, did my introduction, went off to Belize, did the archaeology work. And then I realized that it's, it's a field that where not many of us are exposed to. But there's a lot of opportunity for growth and development. And it was important for me because I've been reading a lot of history books and realizing that a lot of early history books are written from archaeological research and archaeological interpretations. But we weren't the ones actually doing the archaeological work. Right. And so I saw it as a unique opportunity to sort of build out that area of study and move forward with it. Yeah. And that kind of goes to then my next question. In one of your presentations, you were talking about there are specific issues around representation and interpretation in archaeology. And I understood that as you making that statement from your individual perspective as an African-American man. So could you tell us a little bit more about what you meant when you're talking about that? Yeah, that's a good question. So I, and I think diversity and representation in the field is important on a number of levels. I think oftentimes when people enter these disciplines and talk about diversity, the first thing I think about is we need to have faces that look like us in the field. And I think that's a part of the conversations around diversity, but more importantly, it's there's a deeper level to that. It's why do we need to have representation in the field? And so a lot of it isn't just replicating what we see dominant archaeologists doing, but it's actually entering the field and saying, how can we, based off our historical background, our unique experiences, make a contribution to this field and then also use these tools of archaeology to make a contribution to our communities? And so when I'm talking about diversity and a need for diversity in the field of archaeology, it's a need for us to bring our experiences to bear on the discipline and then use our experiences to break open those disciplinary barriers and look at different ways we can retool archaeology to suit our needs. And I realize there's a lack of representation amongst people of the African diaspora in archaeology. There's also a lack of representation just generally. Um, Latinx, there's a lack of representation. Indigenous scholars, lack of representation. 
Asian, Asian American, and it's really all over the board. Our goal and, and sort of my goal has been to sort of build out African diaspora representation and African representation in archaeology. But that's really just sort of a seed to, to say the whole field and discipline needs to expand more broadly. Right. Why is diversity important? Yeah, the conversation around diversity is important because archaeological research continues to be more international and continues to impact a wider variety of communities. But the representation of the archaeologists hasn't met up with that pace of diversity of field sites and work and research being done. And so a large part of it is these communities deserve and need to have control over what research questions are being asked at their sites, what sites they want to actually explore and questions they want to explore, and which ones they don't. And I think it's a key component of the discipline that doesn't really get highlighted and I think should be put out more in the forefront as a responsibility of the researchers. And there's a number of scholars that have been doing this. I don't want to make it sound like this hasn't been done. Yeah, like um, you are the pioneer in yeah, this no. in 2020. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. There are a number of people that have been doing this. And I think it should be put out more forefront and more forward facing in the discipline. Right. That resonates with me because I work in the water industry in the US and we're increasingly talking about the importance of diversity and inclusion and what that means to an industry that is so fundamental to the existence of our society as a whole, because we are cleaning or treating drinking water for millions of communities, right? But often the industry doesn't look like the communities that they serve. And so the kind of solutions or designs that we come up with are representative of like, I would say, a mainstream culture and not necessarily the needs of the communities that they're providing to. And I'm not like trying to place blame or anything like that, but it's just like, if you don't understand what your customers need, then you're not going to design projects that actually kind of attend to those needs in a sense. And I see that that is kind of similar to the research or kind of the challenge that you face in archaeology as well. Right, right. And those communities, the definitions of these communities varies. I mean, there are individuals that would look at me as an African-American and say, okay, well, he can do African-American archaeology anywhere. And then you go to these communities and do work and it's like, well, you're from a certain place and we need to make sure that local people are trained in the work that we do. And so it's also problematizing this idea of community as being sort of writ large. Right. So that kind of speaks to your current research, which is you work in the U.S. Virgin Islands, specifically St. Croix, and you're investigating the relationship between ecology and enslavement in the former Danish West Indies. So I'm guessing you don't necessarily look like the average St. <laughs> Croatian, if that's the word, but you are doing research to help that community kind of in a sense, retrace their steps or just have a better understanding of where these communities have come from. And also just to, I think, build a little bit more pride around the community, a community that is more about like focusing on like the resilience, the innovation based on kind of what you're finding through your research. So could you tell us a little bit about that specific part of your research and what drew you to it? Yeah, definitely. I think one of the things as an archaeologist is the communities we work in often teach us just as much, if not more, than, than sort of what we have to bring to bear in these communities. And working in St. Croix over the last few years has really opened my eyes to a number of different aspects of not just community engagement, not just Virgin Islands history and Caribbean history, but also the way that we do archaeology. And oftentimes, you know, these communities, they've been around for generations and they're going to continue to be around for generations. They have their own understandings of how to maintain heritage, how to maintain culture. And a lot of the things that we do is just bring more resources to bear to help continue and perpetuate that. And then we also, it's a learning opportunity for us because then we can take some of the lessons we learned from those communities back to our own communities and begin to have these broader conversations around ways that we can conserve and protect cultural and natural heritage. So I say all that to say that my research in St. Croix really developed out of an interaction with the community and understanding that ecological questions were of great importance today in St. Croix, as well as issues of food security and insecurity. And those were things that I wasn't even thinking of when I was a PhD student doing archaeology. And those are really things I didn't think about until I went to St. Croix and saw it played out 
And I think one of the things, the unique aspects we have as archaeologists is we can take contemporary questions and look at them historically and ask ourselves, what are the historical origins of these problems or issues or opportunities that arise? And putting that in conversation then with the current community, I think is a good way to sort of allow this research to develop in a, a sort of organic way. Right. So I got into this topic of ecology and slavery and really just trying to understand the environmental impacts of the transatlantic slave trade and of that era. And in part because we hear conversations a lot about issues of reparations, and oftentimes it's couched in this language of economic and financial reparations. But there are many other aspects of life, society, environment that were impacted by the transatlantic slave trade and by slavery. And so I think part of the work is trying to elucidate more of that so that when we do talk about reparations, we can talk about it in a more capacious way as not just economic, not just social, but really a holistic understanding of what reparations could look like. Right. And a big part of our well-being is really grounded in a natural environment that is able to kind of sustain us, right? And we have to be able to, well, historically, we've just manipulated natural ecosystems for our own benefit. And I would say like just modern culture. I think indigenous cultures have a little bit more of like a holistic kind of relationship with nature. So your area of study is called Black Historical Ecology of Slavery. And it's basically looking at the environmental aspects or the environmental factors that influenced slavery and the slave trade. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. And I'm also trying to look at how sort of ecological relationships sort of changed over time as well during this period. Okay. So I do want to know what the ecological conditions were that occurred during specific period that you're looking at. And if you can tell us what that period was, but I think it's also helpful to tell us a little bit about the history of slavery in the Danish West Indies. Because when I read about it, I was very shocked. And I think our listeners would be very interested in hearing this. So take it away. <laughs> yeah. So often when you hear about slavery, especially in the Caribbean, we're often taught about the British, the French, the Spanish, and to a lesser extent, the Dutch and the Portuguese. And they're known as being the sort of main colonial powers in the Caribbean. But the Danes actually owned three islands, the Danish West Indies, when they operated those islands from the mid-18th century up until the early 20th century. And so they owned St. John, St. Croix, and St. Thomas. St. Croix is a unique island in the sense that it was also owned by a number of other colonial powers before that. And then, of course, it was the site of indigenous communities, Saladoy, Taino, and a number of other groups that actually resided there. So it's got a long history of human occupation and interaction and ecological sort of historical knowledge to bear. It's interesting because when you read most histories of St. Croix, they start in the Danish period, which is like 1730s. And there's a whole history before that that often gets sort of either summarized or wiped away as this was sort of pre and post colonialism. Uh, or civilization. Or civilization, <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <Okay. laughs> and so part of the work that we're trying to do now is to understand, yes, Danish colonialism existed. So they did own these islands. They grew mostly sugar on these islands. That sugar was then exported to a number of different colonial powers. They made rum. But there's also a whole other history of one experimentation. So a lot of these colonial powers didn't really know what they were doing. Oftentimes they relied on the knowledge of enslaved Africans to actually grow some of these crops because a lot of these crops didn't grow in Europe. There's also this understanding of them testing out, trying to go cotton, trying to go sugar, trying to go indigo, and some of them working, some of them not working, grappling with ecological issues like hurricanes and, and other natural disasters. And there's a whole lot of different ways that enslaved Africans even use those as opportunities for escape and resistance. And so St. Croix is a unique island because it's one of the few islands where they actually had an enslaved revolt that led to emancipation. So most people know Haiti, and Haiti is probably the best well-known case of that. But St. Croix also had one. The difference between Haiti and St. Croix is Haiti completely took over the island. They created a new republic. St. Croix led to the abolition of slavery, but it was still remained a Danish colony. And so it often gets overlooked in that perspective. But I think that it's powerful in the case of being sort of the second major successful revolt, but then also looking at how it leads to labor movements that come after. 
And so there's, there's a lot of history that doesn't just stop at when slave trade ends, but then also continues into different labor and wage and sort of other histories that, that proceed. Yeah. And when we spoke earlier, we talked a little bit about indentured servitude. And that was basically when slavery was abolished, then they implemented, the colonizers implemented indentured servitude. And that was, I mean, in my personal opinion, is a form of slavery because they were underpaying, quote unquote, the workers. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So are you also looking at the ecological kind of implications of the land from slavery to indentured servitude? Was there like any difference? Yeah. So that's another important aspect of the slave trade that doesn't often get looked at. Right after they abolished slavery, a lot of these colonies actually went out and they were subsidized by the colonial governments to adopt alternative forms of labor and also to sort of retool their plantations. So during this period after slavery and into post-emancipation, the Danish government actually subsidized the switchover from, from wind production to steam production. And part of it was this idea that they need to get off the reliance of free labor and sort of go into other areas of, of ways to continue the slave trade or this, the production of rum and sugar. And so I think there's, there's other sort of economic factors that then spill over into ecology and that continue after that. And then they also had these different incentives to try to bring people from other islands to do sort of cheap or low-wage labor when they couldn't get enough people on the island to do it. Right. I read an interesting fact that between 1500 and 1875, and I'm reading this from my notes, <laughs> was that about 4.8 million enslaved Africans were brought to the Caribbean compared with about 389,000 brought to the U.S. And then perhaps another million people died on the way to those destinations. Why was the Caribbean such a hotspot, I guess, for slavery and the slave trade? Yeah, that's a good question. So those numbers, some of them change over time. But one of the main reasons why the Caribbean was such a hotspot is because that was essentially the concentration of plantations was rooted in the Caribbean. There were a number of plantations, of course, that existed in the U.S. South and other areas, particularly Brazil has the largest concentration of enslaved Africans that were brought to the Americas. But the Caribbean, St. Croix, for example, was completely carved up into plantations. Every square inch was divided into some sort of land that was a plantation, unless it was Christianstead or Frederickstead, the two major cities. And so as a result of that, they were constantly bringing people in. In addition to that, sometimes the Caribbean was the first stop of multiple slave trades that continued after that. So you have slave trade coming into the Caribbean, often the first site that's easy to arrive at from Africa. And then they would go and sell off individuals in the Caribbean and then move on to other locations in the US or in South America and continue the trade that way. So even though you know you have millions of people being brought into the Caribbean, some of those people stay there for a few years and then get sent off or sold to other places in the US South or in South America. Right. It's just such an interesting economy for that time. And you said in one of your presentations that we tend to focus on or tend to know more about the slave trade on like the Atlantic side, but slave trades were happening in Eastern and Southern Africa, up until even like South Asia. And I know this because growing up in Kenya, we did have like forts that were built by the Portuguese that were like holding sites for enslaved Africans that were taken over to Oman, Yemen, India as well. And then we also had a holding point in our coastal islands of Lamu. And then of course, also Zanzibar was a holding spot. And the funny thing is, well, it's not a funny thing, but (laughs) you know, this is that the Arabs were the ones who were actually conducting much of the slave trade in Eastern Africa or the part of the Indian Ocean area. (laughs) It's just really interesting to kind of hear the details of this machine. And it's really shocking to me how efficient the exploitation of these peoples was. Yeah, it was expansive. And again, I'm just studying in St. Croix at the moment, but the sort of understandings that we get from St. Croix do speak to other cases like Mauritius and Seychelles and, and sort of other islands mm-hmm. in Eastern Africa. And then also looking at other communities in, in East Asia and African diaspora more broadly. Yeah. And so this is just one piece of a much larger sort of research base that needs to happen. Yeah. <laughs> it's one of those models that is highly replicable. <laughs> yes. 
Yes, it is. <laughs> In a very morbid way. Yeah, unfortunately. Unfortunately, yes, yes. So when I learned that you were actually taking into consideration environmental factors that kind of like piqued my interest as an environmentalist, but I never thought, I don't know why, <laughs> that you there's, you know, the environment has always been there and that obviously does impact how we do archaeological research. And so tell us about the environmental implications that you were talking about earlier in terms of your archaeological research and kind of how do you gather information that you need to inform the environmental aspects of your research? Yeah, well, just first to couch it in a broader language, I think a lot of people don't really understand the environmental impacts. or don't think about the environmental impacts and what they have to bear on the slave trade itself. And so a lot of people know that the, the Caribbean gets hit with hurricanes on a regular basis. There's a whole hurricane season. But those same hurricane winds that bring these hurricanes to the Caribbean are the same winds that brought a lot of the slave ships from West Africa to the Caribbean. And so there's a direct connection with why a lot of these ships were ending up in the Caribbean first and not further in North America, or in some cases, not further south in South America. And there's a different sort of wind atmospheric pattern that associates with South America. So there's that direct relationship immediately. In addition to that, the slave trade and the need to establish plantation economies required a great deal of alteration of local environments. And so in the Caribbean specifically, the plantation establishment required lots of land clearing to set up these plantations. And oftentimes people don't think about it because it doesn't normally get caught in historical narratives about these islands. But most of the times when colonial powers came into these islands to set up plantation slavery, they had to spend usually at least five to 10, if not longer years, doing nothing but clearing forests, clearing land, and just terraform, right? And so a lot of that led to shoreline erosion, it led to sheet erosion, deforestation, which led to reduced rainfall. And all of these things, while they didn't necessarily have the language back then to calculate them, were things that people are writing about. And they're writing about reduced rainfall, they're writing about drought, they're writing about the severity of hurricanes increasing, in part because you don't have as much foliage to sort of buttress the heavy winds, and all of these different aspects and factors. And so part of the work is just trying to elucidate a lot of that more. And then also looking at ways in which monocrop agriculture depletes and deteriorates the soils. And so there are issues where, you know, soils become depleted and they either have to stop growing sugarcane in some of these areas for a while, or they need to shift to a different crop for a period of time. And then tied into that, there's also issues of these crops that are growing. Sugarcane is probably one of the most water intensive crops to grow and requires a lot of fresh water. And so you have to think about, well, where are these plantations getting their fresh water from, not just for themselves, but also for the crops? Right. So was it mostly groundwater? Uh, there was a lot of groundwater. There was a lot of rainwater as well. Mm. And so they had these cisterns that would capture the rainwater. And then they also had wells that would tap into the groundwater. Yeah. You also mentioned that they were genetically modifying also animals. Yeah, they were. I mean, there was some level of sort of selective breeding in animals. There was also some level of selective breeding in crops as well. So a lot of times when we think of the cotton crop, we think of the staple crop that grows on the bulb. But if you look at sort of early images of cotton, a lot of it grows in these larger bushes that are almost like trees. And so cotton cultivation, you know, two, 300 years ago was very different than sort of cotton cultivation in the last 100, 150 years. In addition to that, they did sort of do selective breeding for specific types of animals. So on St. Croix, they selectively bred what they called the centipold cattle which was a breed of cattle that was supposed to be more heat resistant than other breeds of cattle. And from what I understand, it was unique to St. Croix, and I'm not sure if they actually continue to breed it outside of the island, but there are still some Senegal cattle on the island today. Mm -hmm. Are cattle native to the islands? No, as far as I understand, the Spanish brought cattle, mm. and I'm not sure exactly where they, they came from, where the Spanish brought them from specifically. Okay, that's interesting. I don't know if I've corrected my memory here, but I watched a documentary, I believe, that said that horses were not native to the U.S. Mm -hmm. It's like, what? <laughs> yeah, those were brought exactly. as well. Yeah, a lot of things that we think is sort of native to these places were brought in mm -hmm. for different reasons. I mean, the ferret was introduced in the Caribbean, the weasel, oh, and yeah. these sort of other, and just, just to kill snakes. I mean, a lot of these things were, yeah. It's really interesting because when you're talking about kind of the alteration of these natural environments, those alterations still exist today, several hundred years 
later. And the impact, kind of the negative impact continues on. And it kind of, from my perspective, just perpetuates the economic erosion or the opportunities for economic success because of those poor, I guess, agricultural habits that were implemented Mm -hmm. during colonial times, right? Right, right. So one of the things that I found really interesting is that how you're using I'm not sure if I'm going to say this correctly, but bathymetry data data. to inform you on how the enslaved Africans moved from one island to the other. Is that correct? Yes. So that's ocean current data. More specifically, I'm looking at, yeah, and trying to understand sort of mobility between these islands. If you talk to just a number of different indigenous scholars and scholars in the Caribbean, these ocean currents and oceans in general were more of a connection and a highway between islands than they were barriers between islands. And so part of that work is understanding how these islands were connected. And now technology has developed to the point where a number of different organizations have actually been mapping ocean current data for various reasons. You know, after the BP oil spill, they needed to be able to model and understand how is this oil spill going to affect the rest of the Gulf? And we need to be able to model where ocean currents are going to take oil. And so people have been doing that that work in terms of mapping ocean current data in the Caribbean for a little bit of time now. And you can use that data then to look at and ask questions of, okay, if somebody was trying to escape from an island and they were just to hop in a canoe, where would the ocean currents naturally take them? And so that's part of the work that I'm doing now is trying to look at aspects of seasonality in that work. And then also the idea that, of course, there was a certain level of human agency, whether it was rowing or sailing or paddling that contributed to it. But we can get a better understanding of where these people may have just ended up just off of the fact of following ocean currents. And then when we talk about ecological knowledge, understanding that a lot of these people probably had a good understanding of the ocean and these ocean currents. And so there may have been a specific intentional seasonality to when they were leaving to try to end up in certain places more specifically. Mm. Yeah. And so I misunderstood you then in terms of like the bathymetry data is actually what you're using to help kind of inform you how the coral reefs were impacted. Yeah. One of the things in doing this work is that we have to try many different methods to see which ones sort of work and which ones don't. So over the next year, I'm looking at bathymetry data, which is essentially mapping the ocean floor to try to understand if there's evidence of coral mining scars from coral mining, because coral was a significant building tool in the Caribbean and in St. Croix specifically. And it was also important because a number of what they called rum runners would actually blast out different areas of coral reefs so that they could bring in sort of small boats and canoes into the shoreline to avoid taxation. So there's also this, there's a whole sort of ecological alteration that has to happen in order to build out, um, you know, access to some of these plantations as well as the building material for these houses. So I'm trying to see if we can use bathymetry data to understand where sort of these, these coral were being taken from, and then also understand perhaps where rum runners were coming in into the Caribbean. That's so interesting. Like I was saying earlier on is there are just so many elements of the story and you're trying to kind of connect the dots, which I think is really cool because I like that you're not just focusing on one specific element or aspect of, I guess, the environmental impacts of or implications of slavery and the slave trade. You're looking at how they were all connected to each other and kind of creating this one big story. Yeah, we're trying to take this sort of research model where we're not just operating as archaeologists in isolation, but we have these bigger questions we need to ask. And then we understand that that's going to require us to bring on ecologists. That's going to require cultural anthropologists, a whole range of different disciplines and professions to get to our ultimate goal, which is arriving at some of the answers to this question and then developing new questions as a result of that. You have sort of like an interdisciplinary research team, as you mentioned. And so you have somebody on your team who's actually looking at how the enslaved Africans lived by the material objects that you found, such as like lost buttons and cooked bones and pots and porcelain. And that's really cool. And then you're also looking at the holes in the ground. What are the... Yeah, the bedrock modification. Yes, the bedrock. Yeah. Yeah. And then also the corals that we used to build the houses, right? Right. Oh, by the way, like you didn't tell us about your research area, your physical research area. Oh, yeah, yeah. So the actual physical site is the Estate Little Princess, which is on St. Croix. And it's also the current regional headquarters for the Nature Conservancy. 
And we ended up coming to it after we tried to build out a sort of joint underwater and land archaeology program for local youth on the island. And this site just seemed to be the perfect sort of location to study these questions of what life was like under Danish slavery, while also partnering with the Nature Conservancy and then using those resources to bear for both of our projects. And so that's that's sort of how we got situated in this site. And the Estate Little Princess was a sugar plantation, really started operations in the mid-1700s and lasted up until the early 1900s when it was bought as a vacation home. And then it was eventually donated to the Nature Conservancy afterwards. So it's got a wild sort of history. A vacation it. home? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, I don't think I want a vacation there. I mean, like, it's such a brutal history. Yeah. I mean, but you'd be surprised. You know, a lot of people get married in plantation houses and do all yeah, kinds of things. Cool, not yeah, not cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We need to boycott that. Yeah. <laughs> but there's also another aspect of your research that you're looking at in terms of oral histories around sacred trees. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So the, the goal with that is to, well, there's a number of different goals with that. So we're partnering with uh, Dr. Chanzira Kahina Davis, who is director of the Virgin Islands Center for Caribbean Culture. And we haven't started the project yet, but we were getting it underway when unfortunately coronavirus kicked in. And so we weren't able to go down in March of this year. But the idea is understanding that these trees have sort of memory, meaning making, and in some cases they serve as mnemonic devices for stories and communities. In the Virgin Islands specifically, tamarind trees have been known to demarcate enslaved burial grounds. Baobab trees, there's a large concentration of baobab trees on the island, which of course don't originate in the Caribbean, but they have a whole set of oral history and folklore attached to them. And then cotton trees as well have sort of religious and spiritual significance throughout the Caribbean as well. So part of what we're trying to do is one, to map these trees across the landscape to see, you know, if there's patterns of concentration or sort of where they were located. And then the other part of that then is to record oral histories associated with these trees. We want to understand, you know, the general oral histories that are attached to them, but then to see if there's more specific histories attached to specific trees. This is something that a number of individuals, Olasi Davis and a few others in the Virgin Islands have been doing. And I think it's it's important for us to sort of continue to, to do it systematically and continue to replicate it over time. Because as these major hurricanes come through, it's one of the first things they do is, you know, you cut down trees to make way for new power lines. We have to remove debris. And they tend to have a good sort of process, I'm guessing, by which they demarcate which trees are considered culturally significant and which trees sort of need to be removed. But there's always this possibility, you know, as memory fades or as people move and relocate, it might not be as permanent as we think. Right, right. So the baobab tree is one of my favorite trees and I actually wanted to put use it as, I guess, my business logo. <laughs> They're really impressive trees and we have quite a few of them. Well, we have a larger concentration of baobab trees in the coastal province of Kenya. And when I was home back in December, we drove through parts of the coastal province and I noticed this one part where we're driving, it was just mostly sisal plantations. And then all of a sudden there was a baobab tree. And I wondered, huh, maybe there's like some sort of cultural value to the tree where it's all plantation and then just like random baobab trees around or just like clusters of baobab trees. Yeah, it's There is, of course, so I was working with an archaeologist in Mozambique a few years ago, and he pointed out the fact that you can actually identify some early Portuguese settlements by concentrations of baobab trees, because one of the arguments that's been made is the Portuguese were responsible for sort of promoting the spread of baobabs throughout Africa and India. And as they would go to new locations, they would plant these baobab trees. I'm not sure if that's if there's sort of historical weight behind that, but that's one of the arguments that's been pushed forward. And if you actually do archaeology near some of these trees, just kicking up the dirt around the trees, you'll find ceramics and artifacts, usually in a lot of these cases. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) I'm glad I told you that random story. (laughs) I never thought I could gain that information. Wow. That's very interesting. But there was another interesting thing that you said around baobab trees and what the beliefs were for the enslaved Africans. I think you were saying that they're a portal to Africa or something? There's one oral tradition that says, you know, if you walk into a baobab on a full moon, you can be transported back to Africa. And there are sort of other narratives like this around other trees. Yeah. 
that sort of have some type of cultural significance in these communities. So yeah, and you know, the baobab tree is hollow on the inside. So there's this idea as well. Yeah. Yeah. It's just a mystical, majestic tree. I think I have like maybe 20 pictures of Babab's from a a little road trip. They're just amazing. Anyway, so I won't like rant anymore about Babab trees. (laughs) Another thing that I really kind of admire about your research approach is, yes, it's interdisciplinary, but you also engage with communities through your research. And I believe you called the approach that you guys, that you all take rather, is sustainable archaeology. And a part of that is engaging with youth in your research to get them interested about archaeology and specifically working with, I believe, African-American youth. Could you tell us about how you integrate them into your research? Yeah, one of the things we try to do is we try to integrate training at every level in our research project. So we've partnered with Dr. Alex Jones in Archaeology in the Community, and she's really been instrumental in spearheading the youth training component of our work. And so she's taken the science curriculum from St. Croix and adopted some of the archaeological information and archaeological research we're doing to fit into their science curriculum. And then she does a series of workshops with them leading up to our excavations. And then they come out and do excavations with us for a few days in the field. Um, so they do everything from actually physically digging to sifting the artifacts, to washing the artifacts, to sorting the artifacts. And then they can begin to identify different artifacts and sort of when they originated, where they came from, and those sorts of things. Then we have a training level at the undergraduate level where we have a grant with Dr. Cameron Monroe, Dr. Bill White, and Dr. Ayanna Flewellen through the University of California where we take HBCU students from historically Black colleges and universities to come down to the Virgin Islands with us and do archaeological work. And that idea is to expose students who might not have experience in archaeology to the discipline itself. And mainly because a lot of historically Black colleges don't have archaeology programs anymore. And then we also have a training component for graduate students. So there are a few graduate students that are actually doing dissertation research on the island. And then we also have training for ourselves as sort of the PIs or principal investigators of this project where we rotate that principal investigative position amongst ourselves. And we also get experience in terms of planning logistics, putting together budgets, all those different aspects, so that when we go on to do our own projects after this, we'll have all that knowledge to bear in terms of how to write a research design and implement a project that we can then use as a model. I think that's such a great idea because you give, I think archaeology is one of those areas of study, field study that there aren't very many people that choose that profession, but it's also, I feel like it's one of those studies which is kind of difficult to reach in a sense if you don't know about it, right? Yeah. I wanted to be an Egyptologist when I was a kid. Okay, yeah. <laughs> but it takes years. <laughs> so it does. It takes a long time. It takes time. very many years. <laughs> but I think helping give access to individuals who may not consider it as a profession, but it's a really cool profession because there's so much intersectionality in archaeology, something I didn't really think about growing up because all you'd see archaeologists doing is they're at a dig site on their knees and, you know, brushing off some soil (laughs) and that's all they're doing for hours. But there's so much more to it, as I've learned through our conversation here today. And it just gives me a greater appreciation for the profession and especially then the need to create more diversity around it, because you're telling a story from different perspectives and not just one cultural perspective. So that's something I really appreciate. And you also do teach some of the students how to dive, correct? Yeah, well, we expose them to scuba diving. I'm actually working on my instructor license at the moment. But one thing we want to do is expose them to the possibilities of underwater archaeology. And a big component of that is just learning and knowing how to scuba dive in the first place. And we realize that many students don't even get the opportunity to experience what scuba diving is and if it's something that they like or could see themselves doing. So yeah, so now we've implemented it as part of our program in St. Croix, where we, we let them do what they call a discover scuba diving. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so yeah, it's part of it. We need to That's make sure cool. that they, they have a full understanding, and especially from us, from the environmental component. Right. You need to understand the environment isn't just on land. There's a whole other environment that's underwater and the connection between the two. And the same with artifacts. You know, there are artifacts that we find on land and there are artifacts we find underwater. 
Mm-hmm. And we shouldn't be separating them. That's amazing. Yeah. You should totally make a movie <laughs> <laughs> or a documentary when you guys yeah. are, you know, have done with your research. Well, you're never done with your research, but when you have a good right. amount of content. <laughs> so I guess we'll go into the lightning round here. Mm-hmm. And I have a series of four questions and you just answer the first thing that comes to your mind. If nothing does, that's fine. We'll move on to the next question. All right. <laughs> so what have you read, heard, or watched lately that has influenced you the most? Oh, wow. For this project or just in general? Oh, just in general. Okay. So on a metaphysical level, <laughs> I would say the Tao Te Ching is probably one of the most influential books I've read. Yes. So that's an important one for me. For this research specifically, I've started to read more novels, which I'm trying to get into more. And then I guess one of the major Caribbean theorists I've been reading recently has been Sylvia Winter and her conceptions and understanding of indigeneity and what does it mean to be indigenous to a land that you're not necessarily from, but you find yourself struggling in over extended generations. And how do you rebuild sort of a connection and a redefinition of indigeneity around that? So that's been probably the most important. I recently had a conversation with Frances and we met her at the Dope Conference about, and we were talking about indigeneity and what it means as an African-American woman Mm -hmm. who's doing research in Louisiana with African-Americans and with indigenous peoples there. So anyways, sad note. Yeah, no, <laughs> that you would bring question. it up, yeah. and we just had that conversation yesterday. Anyways, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I, I really hope when we have a conversation with her on, on the podcast, um, we're definitely going to be talking more about it because I think that's something that she struggles with as a researcher, but just like from a personal level, not necessarily professional. Mm-hmm. And it's something I guess I didn't really ask myself until recently when I've been exposed more to these kind of conversations about what does it mean to be somebody who's indigenous to some culture, but is not indigenous to where we are physically right now. Yeah. I was going to say, I think one thing that really opened my eyes to a lot of this, talking to colleagues and then looking at the Haitian Revolution. And if you look at the Haitian Revolution and immediately after the Haitian Revolution, one of the first things they did was to say, everybody is indigenous and everybody is black, regardless of what you look like and regardless of where you came from before. And the idea was to resituate that by renaming the island Haiti and the people of it as Haitians. And I think it, it requires a different conceptualization of what we think of as indigenous. But then it also does important things like resituate our responsibility to the place that we find ourselves in. And it also forces us to understand that we weren't the first people to occupy this place, but that doesn't mean that we overwrite what they experienced and what they did, but we add on to this story landscape. Right. I think in in some cases, we don't have control over how we find ourselves in a specific community, right? Mm -hmm. But it's going back to what you said is how do you situate yourself respectfully? Mm -hmm. I'm definitely going to be reading that book. It sounds very interesting. (laughs) Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. What is a personal habit that has helped you significantly in your work? Oh, wow. Time management is probably the most important thing that has helped me with my work. Mm-hmm. And I'm learning how to become more selfish with my time, even though I haven't been traditionally good at that. Yeah. But it has helped in terms of understanding. We move through different phases, sort of in the research projects and our careers and different areas. Mm-hmm. And I think I'm at the point now where so many people have asked me or asked to read certain things that I talk about to the point where now I'm situating myself as, all right, I have to sit down a certain amount of hours each week and just write. Yeah. Because people have asked for this. So, <laughs> yeah, that's time. You must in- deliver. Yeah, I must <laughs> deliver. <laughs> yeah. It's your responsibility as a researcher for life. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, thank you for actually making time for this interview. I really appreciate it because oh, no, I know you're busy and you're working on being selfish with your time. So, <laughs> no, thank, thank you for being generous. <laughs> What's the best piece of advice you've received? Mm, the best piece of advice. Sort of bring your authentic self into your work. Mm-hmm. I think oftentimes in academia, we're taught to think objectively and operate objectively. And there's a sort of gravitas and clout that's attached with being objective. But I think that you should be doing the complete opposite. <laughs> I think you should be very subjective in your work in terms of determining what you choose to research and why you choose to research it. 
And that doesn't mean it, it biases the outcome in any way, but it does mean that you have intentionality behind your work. And I think in many ways, intentionality is more important than motivation. And it's what's going to keep you going. It's what's going to keep people interested. And it's what's going to change things in the future. Yeah, that's really great advice. Just be subjective because I think for me as a researcher, I've always been trained to be objective. But how do you be objective when you're an individual doing the research? I mean, you're going to bias the research in some way or the other, right? Right. But in your case, it's I can see it's so important for you to bring your authentic self to the research. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I think that's the core mission of why we need to diversify the field of archaeology in general is because we need more people to be subjective about what it is they're researching, why they're researching it, and what the right. research looks like. Yeah. Yeah. It's so funny that old school researchers would say, be objective when they weren't themselves. Mm-hmm. Like the research looks right. like white. <laughs> you know what I'm right. saying? <laughs> so how is that objective? I don't know. Yeah. Anyways, yeah. another rant for another day. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, what is your superpower? Oh, wow. My superpower. That's a good question. I don't know if I have a superpower. You do. <laughs> I work with a group called Diving with a Purpose, and they say one of the things they do is help ordinary people do extraordinary things. Mm. And so if I had to have a superpower, I would say it would just be sort of the ability to think and operate outside of myself continually. Yeah, I think that allows you to imagine things that aren't, that you wouldn't even think are possible. And it's important. That's mm-hmm. awesome. Yeah. And you kind of, out of the box type of thinking, which is, yeah, it's awesome. All right. So this brings us to the end of our conversation. Your journey continues. So how can we follow you? Yeah, I'll provide some links in the show notes. You can watch Science Magazine did a piece on our work in St. Croix. National Geographic did a short piece on some of the work we've been doing with (laughs) slave shipwrecks. And then I'm on all the social media channels. I'm trying to get more involved in Twitter, although it's a long process. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, it's hard to keep to my, the character my, count. <laughs> it is. And it's hard for I read all day. So the last thing I want to do is read more stuff. So Instagram is better for me than, than Twitter <laughs> yeah. is. <laughs> yeah. But the handle on the social media is ARC Field Notes. So it's A-R-C-H and Field Notes, all in word. You can follow me there for some of the exploits and journeys. Great. We will do that. Is there anything else you would like to add before we end the session? No, I'd like to say thank you for putting this podcast together and and keeping the conversations going. I think that there's definitely sort of new excitement and interest around environment and ecology, and it's permeating many different fields right now. And hearing all these diverse perspectives on how people are engaging with this topic from their different backgrounds and whether they're personal backgrounds or academic backgrounds, I think is really important and exciting. Yeah. And thank you so much for sharing your story. Definitely has changed my perspective on our history as people. And it's just really cool research. I was like, I wish I was doing that. (laughs) You know, diving into the ocean and looking for historical artifacts and building coral farms and stuff like that. Yeah, it's never too late. Never too late. (laughs) Oh, don't say that. Maybe one day I might end up in St. Croix hanging out with you guys in the soil. (laughs) Yeah, I will say one of the things we try to do and promote in our research is that it's not just enough for us to study these questions and find answers Mm -hmm. to them, or even just to study these questions, but we also have to do something then to mitigate the sort of troubles and the issues that come out as a result of that. Right. So that's that's what we've been pushing with what we're calling sustainable archaeology, what we're now calling an archaeology of redress, is this need to do the work that we do with the intention of them not waiting for somebody else to do it, but then taking the onus on ourselves to add next some type of change. Yeah. And so then I guess not to go back into interview mode, but what does that look like for you working on Estate Little Princess? Yeah. So for us on Estate Little Princess, we hire the local land steward to clear the land for us before we do any excavation. Mm -hmm. And he is very attuned to indigenous plants that are on the landscape. And so he marks them off so we make sure not to touch them. Mm. It also means then that we partner with other organizations like Diving with a Purpose that does coral reef restoration. So that while we're looking at sort of coral mining and the implementation of coral in buildings, we then can go out into the field and begin to help out planting coral and propagating coral. 
And it opens a lot of, not just our eyes, but it opens the eyes of the students to understand, wow, you know, over 80% of the reefs have died around the world. And how can we begin to think more consciously about the natural environment in relationship to the cultural environment? Right. And all those different questions that spur from it. So yeah. we lose some archaeologists <laughs> to the marine sciences, but... <laughs> but at least they're going into marine science with a perspective of an archaeologist, right? So nothing yes, is yeah. lost. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Now that's amazing. And I feel like if possible, every form of research should be able to give back to the community that they're working in mm-hmm. and empower them. And this is with the youth that you work with, you are kind of helping build their own culture or like fill in the gaps for them. And from a, an environmental perspective, I think that's just so critical to how we're going to shape ourselves as future generations, not as kind of separate from nature, but a part of it. I see your work as helping kind of make those connections, but in a very like meaningful way. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. We just try to help by giving resources to communities that are already doing this work when we can and learning as much as we can. Yeah, yeah. We're always learning. Always. Keep that (laughs) subjective humility. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Thank you again. Like, I just like feel so lucky to be able to have people say, yeah, you launched in February. All right. We'll talk to you. We don't know you. (laughs) But (laughs) I'm really pretty appreciative of the generosity that you and others have shown me through this process. So thank you. Hey all, thanks for listening to Breaking Green Ceilings. If you'd like to hear more episodes with change-making environmentalists, head on over to watersavvysolutions.com backslash podcast. You can find me online on Instagram and Twitter. And as always, if you love the show, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and like on iTunes. You can also sign up for my newsletter to find out when new episodes are available. And please do share the podcast with your family, friends, colleagues, and whoever you think will be inspired by the wisdom of our change makers. I always welcome feedback, so please do feel free to reach out to me. My contact information is also on watersavvysolutions.com. Until next time, keep breaking through those green ceilings.